Well, good morning, everyone. That's an interesting slide this morning. Oh, there we go. It may or may... Ah, excellent. Oh, oh. Yeah. No, don't. Please don't. Um, Right, good to see you all this morning. Um, We are going to continue in our Ephesians series this morning. But just a a few thoughts before we dive into that. Um, uh, You may or may not have heard, and some of you will know of Tim Keller, the uh, pastor from Manhattan has written many, many books, has influenced uh, Christianity uh, for a number of years now and has helped many people, sadly passed away uh, on Friday morning. Um, but just in his dying, and it's, it quite affected me, I've read most of Tim Keller's books and have really found him quite shaping and, and how he's helped me in my Christian journey, but he's just he was so fixed on that this life wasn't all there is. And even in death, as he was dying, he says to his wife, there is no downside in me leaving. Not in the slightest. I mean, it will be for his family. And and a quote, a Tim Keller quote, I will actually be quoting him in today's sermon. He said, all death can do to Christians is make their life infinitely better. (laughs) Ha! His life has just been made infinitely better. And church, can I just encourage you to remember that this life is not all there is. And we can so focus on what's going on here and now, but actually we have a great hope in him, don't we? Death, all death can do is make our lives infinitely better. Wow. Okay, Um, we're... I just want to look back briefly at what has uh, gone before in Ephesians in the last few weeks. And we see how Paul has been instructing the Christian to consider how we walk. He says, look carefully how you walk. We are to think about how we live. It is so important. If we are to own this gospel message and say, Jesus Christ, I belong to you, we are to consider how we are living. The days are short, and Paul says the days are evil. We are not in a neutral place in the world here. And out in the world, as Christians, we need to wake up to the spiritual reality that is going on out there. Out there in the world is charged with a narrative that is against God and against the gospel. So we are not in a neutral space. So be wise in how you walk. And Paul starts to talk about that. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and from verse 15, he starts to talk about that. The days are evil. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. He he shows us from verse 18 what the signs look like to be filled with the Spirit. Adam touched on it again last week. Verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. So getting drunk can lead to all sorts of bad decisions, all sorts of things that you'll regret. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, that sounds good, doesn't it? But then directly after that, what Adam looked at last week, it says, submit to one another. Well, we, we kind of like the singing and making melody bit, Lord, but I'm not sure about this. 
But these are habits as well in the singing of the spiritual songs which help us in our daily experiences with God. So singing and making melody with our heart. Jody referenced that this morning in worship. Singing with our heart. It's about an engagement of our heart, not just repeating words. Thinking about what we're doing. It's engaging brain and heart and saying, I give my all. I love that last song. I give you my heart. And it is helpful to have a thankful heart. It is good for your heart to be thankful. But then it says submit. But yeah, we like those first few bits, but this doesn't sound as fun. But actually Paul focuses on this for the next 20 verses. Adam unpacked it and he said last week, submission is key to us growing as Christians. That we learn to submit to Christ. And new believers will come into the kingdom, but then suddenly there's, it's more than just believing, it's actually you're called to die to self. And we, as believers, followers of Christ, sometimes will come up against things where God has different ideas to us on how things should be done. And sometimes that's difficult to deal with. As a pastor, you are trying to encourage people to line up with the word of God without seeming judgmental, but saying, hey, this here, what is written, is God's best plan for you. And learning to submit to God is a very healthy thing. We learn to submit to one another and to parents, spouses, but we learn to submit to God. It's a bit like obedience. I want to teach my children obedience because it will actually help them later on in life to respect authority which is also important. We don't like to, you know, in today's culture, we don't like to talk about respecting authority. That's important. But it also helps them be obedient to God. Rather than trying to be our own authority, our own Lord, let God be the ruler of your life. And guess what? The creator of the universe who spoke and things came into being, who sees the beginning and the end, guess what? He has a better plan. And he knows what's best for you. So this spirit-filled life should affect our relationships. It should affect how we interact with people. If you are spirit-filled and it doesn't change you, I think there needs to be a question asked. Has anything actually happened? But now let's dive into today's passage. And we're going to go through the 33-point sermon. And you'll see why uh, it is that. That's what I read at the beginning. So, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So now you know why it's a 33-point sermon. Um, I'm just going to pray. Why don't we just bow our heads for a moment and ask the Lord to help us with this passage. Lord, we believe that your word is breathed out by you. This is breathed out scripture. Help us, Lord, line up with your word and come under the authority of your word. Give us wisdom, Lord, I pray, as we just look into this today. Give me wisdom, Lord, in guiding us through this. And Lord, help it shape us and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I wondered why the words were smaller. It's because I haven't put my glasses on. That is much better. So, um, this passage is for all of us. Whether we are married or not, single or not, married, wanting to be married, married for a short time, married for a long time. This is for all of us. And we need to learn to get to grips with these passages as we could try and shy away from it. Or maybe it's a bit too sensitive, it's a bit too topical. But we must seek to understand the Word of God and come under its authority. Firstly, I think it's helpful to understand what marriage is and what it represents. First and foremost, this passage and marriage is a reflection of the gospel, of Christ and his church. We see at the beginning and the end of Scripture a beautiful wedding. It's significant the Bible begins with a wedding. That weddings were, this first wedding was supposed to, it had a purpose to fill the world with the children of God. The first bride and groom, Adam and Eve, turned from God and the first wedding failed to fulfill its purpose. But the last wedding, we see the church, the bride, coming down, ready to meet the bridegroom, Jesus, prepared, beautifully dressed for her husband. We see this picture in Revelation. We see God the Father bringing the bride to her husband. Only this time the husband is Jesus and we are the bride, the church. At the beginning, the first wedding, Adam failed to step in and help his wife when needed. The second husband does not fail where the first did. The true Adam, Jesus Christ, will never fail the second Eve, the church. I don't know if you've been to many weddings. Gemma and I have been to a few over the years. What do we think it is on the last count, Gemma? Ballpark figure. Around 70-ish weddings in the last 20 or so years. It's a lot of weddings. Don't feel you have to invite us to your wedding. Um, no, I'm joking. We love weddings. We love weddings. But when you arrive at the big day, the, the big moment, the church is full. The, the groom is shifting nervously at the front. The doors swing wide at the back. The bride is here. But she is not alone. Her father is walking her up the aisle. Ideally, the father is walking her up to hand her over to her future husband. 
It is this beautiful picture of the father bringing forth the woman at the beginning of creation to the man. The bride is dressed beautifully for her husband, just as we will be covered by beautiful garments of grace and righteousness when Jesus comes to meet his bride, the church. And what we're looking at today is God's plan for marriage. And I appreciate there is all sorts of different situations and nuances even in this room. I just want you to know God has grace for you in this. But partly what I'm looking at today is God's plan for Christian marriage. But what marriage isn't is God's plan for everyone. And it can be mistakenly held up within the church as the goal for everyone. But that is not true. That is not what scripture encourages. And it's helpful to understand this from the beginning. Let's not assume that everyone should get married or encourage everyone to get married. We need to reclaim the beauty of singleness as it is taught in Scripture. Devoting one's life to the Lord as a single person is something God commends. But we often view it as a kind of second-class life. God intends, yes, most people to get married, but it doesn't follow through that singleness is secondary. Indeed, Paul actually prefers singleness. So one can devote oneself to ministry and to the Lord without distraction. How can you tell if one should live a single life? If you have a strong desire to get married or strong sexual desires, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that you should pursue marriage. Paul isn't saying to people who are longing to be married that they must quench their desires and force themselves to be single. I think his advice is, don't think you must or have to be married. If you can live happily as a single person, pursue such a life and honor the Lord with your time. Another cultural observation is that we are obsessed with personal fulfillment and have moved away from and not so concerned with the common good in today's culture. It is very prevalent in the West, and it is nearly always I before we. Do you understand what I mean? Because it's the other way around in many parts of the world. And you see it in lots of places. I don't know if you noticed in the last Olympics in Tokyo, it was 2021, it was supposed to be 2020, um, the, the athletes have, have received their medal, the podium, they're being interviewed afterwards, and many of them will say now, I am trying to inspire the younger generation, to fulfill their dreams. When it used to be, it is an honor to represent my country. And there's nothing wrong with the first one, but there's a difference because one is personal fulfillment and the other is thinking more corporately of what I am a part of. And it's an issue biblically because there are two things we should actually be concerned with before ourselves and we should focus on before ourselves, and that is God and our neighbor. The worship of God, the fame of God, the honor and the glory of God should be what we are preoccupied with. And then out of the overflow of that, we should go on and love others and those around us. We have to look at ourselves, but self is not the goal. 
And this cultural trend now in the West creeps into marriage because we want a marriage that makes us happy. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but this can't be the main thing that is going on. It is so much bigger than that. There's so much more going on than that. So if we look at the first few slides, first few verses, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And it's been argued that really this is no longer relevant, and it can't mean that wives should be subject to their husbands and like, this is some sort of patriarchal hierarchy within marriage. Surely this is at odds with men and women being, uh, having equal status as image bearers of God. Many will refer to the previous verse that Adam looked at, you know, that we should all submit to one another. There is equality in marriage. Surely it cannot mean this. But whenever this word is used, it is used in the context of a relationship. Husbands and wives, parents and children, bondservants to masters, obviously in different ways. And whenever you get the word submit in the New Testament, it's used 21 times, four times within marriage, two slightly ambiguous, and 15 other times, it is always in reference to types of relationship. And it's always in a certain direction, people towards governing bodies, children to parents, wives to husbands. Again, appreciate the differences in those relationships. It's not saying the submission is the same through all of those. But because this is controversial, it doesn't mean we should throw it out the window. We would lose the richness of what is happening here. And instead of looking at this with our West, modern Western eyes, we need to have a biblical worldview and understanding. That to submit within a relationship like husband and wife is not to lower yourself or be less than the other, but this is God's designed order. Not that the husband is better than the wife or superior. And we remember that this word subordinating has been dignified by the gospel, by Jesus. In Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He subordinated himself to death, and it has been dignified through what Christ has done. There is a difference between someone trying to subordinate you and you doing it yourself. Do you understand the difference there? No one could subject Jesus to death. He chose to do it. He submitted to the Father's will, not my will be done, but yours. And I understand this has been abused over the years by abusive men. But let me make this clear. All women are not called to submit to all men. Even girlfriends are not called to submit to boyfriends. That is not recognized in the Bible. It is only wives to husbands. And it is not also within an abusive marriage. If you are being abused, then you need to get out. You need to leave. There, 
And I believe that is a biblical ground for divorce. The husband has abandoned his duty of care and protection over you if you are being abused. And we have helped women, wives, get out of many difficult and dangerous situations. A lot of this goes unseen. However, despite all of that, we must not scrap this. And partly this has been abandoned over the years is because of the failure of men. Husbands are called to lead their wives. And I, I've had to learn how to do this over a number of years. Gemma and I have been married 19 years. And at the beginning, I didn't understand what it meant to lead my wife. But this is kind of how it looks in our home. And I am far, she will tell you, speak to her afterwards, I am far from perfection or getting it all right. Sometimes I can be quite annoying at home. I'm, you might find that hard to believe. Sometimes I do things on purpose just to annoy her. But I do seek to honour and love my wife. And I, I don't just do that by reading bits of the Bible or books that I'm reading to her, although I do do that far too often, I think, sometimes. But, but sit by seeking to help her flourish, I make sacrifices. I don't just try and impose my will on her because that is not submission. I believe that one day Gemma will stand before a holy God. And what does it mean to love my wife? It's not to make her life the most comfortable I can, but one day she's going to stand before the holy and righteous God and I want to help her be able to do all that God has created her to do. I get to partner with Jesus in helping her become all that he's created her to be. And she, with the same with me. I, I, I think I've said this before, but the the things that have shaped me the most is the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and Gemma Lettington. And they are a powerful combination. But he's created us to do things. Gemma is going to be in the presence of God. Do you, do you believe that? I'm not questioning her salvation, by the way. I'm just talking in general terms. Gemma's going to be in the very presence of God. And if we get upset by this, this first part, then we need to read the rest because there is a greater call on the husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word. That he might present the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and blame, holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So according to the Bible, the man is the head of the family and his wife should acknowledge his leadership. Remember, I'm talking about God's perfect plan for Christian marriage. Real spiritual leadership involves loving service. It's a form of dying. Just as Christ served his disciples, even to the point of washing their feet, the husband is the same to serve his wife. He might not want to wash her feet, but especially if she's got like corns and stuff, and because that's just gross. But, but the husband 
is called to serve the the wife. And if you are a wise, Christ-honoring husband, you will not take advantage of the leadership role you have been given. Just like a wise wife will try not to undermine him. And I've seen this both ways, and it doesn't work. And husbands, if you ever have to say to your wife, you need to submit to me. Hey, do you remember Ephesians 5.22? You are not doing well, my friend. You are losing in this situation. And wives, are you allowing your husband to lead? And sometimes, slash a lot of the times, you are much quicker to think of things than we are. That is definitely the situation in our house. You may have more ideas than your husband. That is definitely the situation in our house. But allow him to grow and encourage him to go deeper with God. One of the greatest things my wife did for me was to allow me to give up my job, work part-time and go to Bible college for a year. And then do leadership training with New Frontiers. She encouraged me to spend time with people who did me good. Do you know what? We, we still don't have all of this sorted. You know my wife. Some of you will know my wife. She's no wallflower. She's beautiful and lovely and wonderful. But she is a fairly strong-minded individual. She has an opinion. And when I think we should do things or make decisions in certain areas, we discuss it. We might argue a bit. But we know we're on the same trajectory. We know we're moving in the same direction. We remember that we're on a mission and we know that each other is not the focus. We, we have done uh, many times over the years the pre-marriage course with couples who are about to get married and they're often surprised with one of the first things we say because they come in and go, oh, we're so in love. We want to gaze into each other's eyes. We want to spend the rest of our lives. We go, hey, this marriage is not about you. It's about the kingdom of God and the mission that he's created you to put together. This is about him and his kingdom. Oh, I just wanted to know how I could serve her better. Uh, I wanted to know how we could make each other happy. No, it's not about you. And there are couples that get along better than us, but they're not living for anything. They're not on mission. There's a war going on, and we can be huddled in our safe little life. We are in a spiritual battle, people. There's something bigger going on than my family and I don't want my kids to grow up all safe and not know the battle that we're in. I want to raise a man and, and two, two women for the kingdom of God and his glory. So when we give up our lives, when we lose it, that's when we find it. Cross the finish line, win the race. Sometimes marriages will drift or fall apart because they lose sight of the mission. When teams do really well, it's because they're focused on the championship and they're united together. You might remember, apologies if you're not into football, I am quite a lot. Um, a few years ago, Leicester won the Premier League and it was total surprise. That sort of thing never happens in the Premier League. An underdog winning the Premier League. Uh, but they, they, as they became focused as the goal got clearer and clearer they became this really solid unit and they won the league but they didn't start the season by going oh let's get really close to each other and then maybe some success will come no they focused on the goal ahead 
I've led a number of mission trips abroad over the years, and all the groups that I would lead get really close together because they're focused on the mission together and serving together. And couples struggle and find difficulty when they focus on each other too much. You're not meeting my needs. So let's not focus on ourselves too much. Richard Cokin, who wrote Ephesians for You, which is helping and aiding the Salters group as they look at Ephesians, said this, We discover that we are more blessed as we serve him together than if we make our own happiness our governing idol. As two cyclists focused on the road ahead can enjoy traveling very closely, but will crash if they're constantly gazing intently at each other. And so a husband and wife who make serving the gospel of Christ their shared goal can enjoy being much closer together than if they were focused entirely upon their happiness. I thought that was very helpful. Let's run this race that is set out before us. And if you're married or wanting to be married, do it with a partner who is on mission. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. This beautiful bride that Jesus is coming back for. Just finally, a few things on submission. It is always conditional upon obedience to God. It is not mindless. It's not about ability, but order, God's designed order. It does not mean equality, inequality. It is designed by God. And when done the right way, it is for the flourishing of all mankind. The husband is to love and to serve his wife in a Christ-like way. He has the harder call when we read this passage all the way through. Paul devotes twice as many words to telling husbands to love their wives as wives submitting to their husbands. Nowhere does it tell a husband to exercise his authority over his wife. I believe this stuff. I believe that we are equal in marriage, but this what this represents is a picture of Christ and the church. Now, obviously, there are some slight differences in that as well, because Christ and the church is eternal. Marriage is temporary. Christ saved the church. The husband doesn't save the wife. I mean, I have saved my wife on one or two occasions. I, I may not have mentioned this before, um, but I did save her once at a fireworks display when they were heading towards her, and I selflessly threw myself in front of her. But I don't want to talk about that too much, okay? <clears throat> we are, though, as equal partners. We are as equal partners, we are able to tell this bigger story and uniquely model what has happened in the gospel. If we flatten it out, out of a fear of something, or we, what happens is we miss a glorious, transcendent truth. And this is the image of Christ and the church. Hey, through, in all marriages, we go through springs and summers, and autumns and winters, right? But through it all, we have made a covenant promise to one another. And the, the relationship is not ultimately about you and me. We are caught up in something bigger and better. And the covenant promise 
We see the reflection of Christ as the head of the church from verse 25 onwards. How Christ, as the head, nourishes the church. The husband is to do the same, to nourish and cherish. This is just an observation that I've made over the years, but men are great at eating. I feel like I've almost perfected it. We love to eat, and we love to uh, look after ourselves, to keep going, to keep well fed. Think about how we can nourish and look after our wife. The husband should pursue her and keep pursuing her. Make much of your wife because Jesus made much of the church. Put her first after God, obviously, because Jesus put the church first. Husbands, be like Christ. As you treat your wife like this, there is something beautiful at work here. She receives you as you do that. I've never heard a wife complain about such a husband. Wives, have a posture of receiving that. Not if it's stupid or sinful, but run together. Unity is the goal of this marriage. It's not equality. We are created differently to complement one another. And as we learn to run together, to bless others together, to create an environment where people can discover the peace of God, work out the call of God on your lives together. We're still individuals, but we have become one. What happens to one affects the other. You have become one flesh. Joined together in the union of sex, a gift from God reserved between a man and a woman in marriage. And it says that at the beginning in Genesis, Jesus says it in the Gospels, and Paul is re-emphasizing it here. It is a journey of discovery over a number of years that needs to be worked at and have grace with and patience for on both sides. And you remember, you enter into a covenant with one another, not a romance novel. And it takes time, and it takes hard work. And if you've become a believer, or you are a believer, and you're married to someone who doesn't believe, the Bible also says stay married to them. And by the way you are, will speak to them. There is grace in those situations. And just a few things I want to touch on, really, before we end. is And what has often stuck out to me when reading this in the Bible is when at weddings, often at, again, I've been to a few, often at weddings you hear the father of the bride or someone doing a speech saying, oh, we welcome the bride or the groom into our family. While that is true to a degree, you leave your father and mother. Verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You become a brand new family. God has created this, and you need to focus on what it looks like for you rather than trying to fit into another mold of what family looks like. And as I've already mentioned, marriage is not the ultimate goal. We cherish marriage, we uphold marriage, but it is not the ultimate goal for everybody. And believe it or not, the Bible is not about marriage or family, but about him. Marriage is a small glimpse of what we see in eternity, where then that new day we will be united with God forever in eternity. 
and we shouldn't over-focus on the family. We want to see families grow and flourish, but we can easily let family or relationships become an idol. And what Jesus says and what um, the, a lot of the New Testament says about the family is shocking. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, those who are married live as though you are not. It doesn't mean in a sinful way. Our goal in life is the undivided devotion to the Lord. And in life, we can come up with so many excuses that stop us from becoming radical for the Lord. And as I've said, I could live like the children or Gemma depend on me. So, you know, I don't want to take any risks. But this book is about people who take radical risks for the Lord and insane faith who say, I'm going to go wherever you call me and do whatever you want me to do. Jesus says in Luke 14, those who don't hate their own mother, father, wife and children and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross cannot be my disciple. There is so much more we could say on this high call of singleness. I think we'll devote a whole sermon to it at some point. But Jesus seems to be saying, though, God gives grace to him in whatever capacity he calls people to. If a person is called to celibacy, then God gives grace for that. If a person is called to marriage, God gives grace for that. And the disciple must receive what God gives and do what God requires, whatever that is. Some have been given the gift of marriage. God will give you the grace for that, to serve him and obey him in whatever he assigns. That may not involve the experience of covenant marriage, You don't have to be married to serve the Lord. You don't have to be married to be fully human. Jesus was the most human of humans, and he never married. You can be all that God has called you to be without ever experiencing the gift of marriage. It's a good thing, but it's not the only good thing, and it is not a necessary thing. Some people will witness to the goodness and glory of God through covenant marriage. Some people will witness to these things through their joyful embrace of celibacy and sufficiency. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And it is important, church, that how we love and serve single people together, working together, serving Christ together, opening our homes and partnering with them in the gospel. And if you're looking to be married, then look for someone who is besotted with God rather than you. And then the relationship will be much stronger. I would encourage you, if you're a Christian and wanting to be married, look for someone else who is a Christian. Keller talked about this. Tim Keller talked about if this thing that should be of most importance to you is not reciprocated with the other. They will not get you. And it will never, it will always put Jesus more in the periphery than less. He, He talks about how 2 Corinthians 6 urges Christians not to be unequally yoked in our closest relationships with people who don't share our deepest beliefs. Again, this is not for people who are already married to unbelievers or have come a believer. 
It says, it's the, the unequally yoked. It's the image of a farmer trying to yoke together two different animals, say an ox and a donkey, who are of different heights, weights, and gaits, as in walking. The heavy wooden yoke, instead of harnessing the power of the team to do the task, would rub and chafe both animals. So a marriage between someone who is a practicing, believing Christian and someone who is not can be unfair and painful to both partners. So pray about that. Ask God to give you wisdom for that. Secondly, looking for a partner, it has to go beyond physical attraction. Though important, it should be based on a deeper level of attraction. Something that goes beyond the physical, because we all grow older and weaker. But internally, we can grow stronger and more beautifully. Hold fast to something that will never fade. Because we all have stuff now, how we might look, how we might be. But it fades. And let's remember what this is about. This marriage, this covenant that Paul is talking about. It's a reflection of Christ's suffering and laying down his life for the church. We, we're here to tell this redemption, redemption story of his grace, of this profound mystery, married or unmarried. Married for a short time, married for a long time, single or not. God has called you to tell the story, this redemptive story that the husband, the great husband, Jesus, is returning for his bride. And one day you get the opportunity to be dressed in his be- the beautiful garments of grace and righteousness. That is what this is about. Focus on the greater call. Why don't we stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the gift of marriage. But Lord, we ask you for wisdom, Lord, to be good husbands and good wives. Lord, we ask for grace for everything else in between, Lord, for those who have the call of singleness, those who want to be married, those who are married to unbelievers. We ask for your grace in that. Lord, I just want to call out to you for every unbelieving wife and husband. Lord, will you start to stir their hearts now towards you as their uh, spouses live out a life honoring you, Jesus. We pray for, Lord, even in this church that we see a great turning of spouses who don't know you, that will come to you. Lord God, we, Lord, we just cry out and we say, come by your spirit. And by your power, we pray for the unbelieving spouse now. Come and meet with them. Come and speak with them. Lord Jesus, I pray for wisdom for those who are looking to be married. Help them, Lord, find gospel partners, Lord Jesus. Help us not have a focus on our own uh, comfort and happiness, but our focus is on you. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll just speak to us again through your word this week as we seek you, in Jesus' name. Amen.